Open your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 15. And as you turn there, it's imperative for you to know I selected that song prior to this message because as we look at this passage together, I pray the words of that song will become as rich and meaningful to you as it ever has in light of the revelation of God in Christ Jesus here in this vision of God's seven bowl judgments. We'll begin reading this morning in Revelation chapter 15, verse 5, where we left off two weeks ago, and we will read a a prolonged passage that will take us through the entirety of chapter 16. So, chapter 15, verse 5. Through the end of chapter 16, I, I urge you to follow along. John writes, After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. And then I heard a loud voice in the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl and into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. 
The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were peals of and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds, each fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hell, because the plague was so severe. And thus ends the reading of God's word. As we begin another vision in John's prolonged series of visions, I think it's important for us to be reminded of a few things before we engage this text. I'm not near as concerned for us that, as students of the book of Revelation that we understand the intricacies of the structure of the book of, of Revelations. I do think we need to understand some of the, uh, the scaffolding that John, as inspired by Jesus Christ, the scaffolding in the book of Revelation that John is using to hold up his message, the message of the victory, the triumph of Jesus Christ enthroned on high. That's, that's really the, the message of the book of Revelation to the seven churches, representative of every church in every age, that despite what you're going through, despite your circumstances, despite the, the sufferings you're going through, the persecution, the temptations to drift from Christ, Understand this, as you cling to Christ, Christ wins. And the series of, of, of visions that we have in the book of Revelation are all, again, I, I go back to the imagery of it's like looking at a football game. You have different cameras around the stadium giving you different perspectives of the exact same game. You're looking at it, but each camera may be focusing on something a little bit different focusing on a different player, giving a play from a different perspective, focusing upon the coach, looking at the big panorama of things. Likewise, these visions are all giving us various perspectives of this same central message. Look to Christ. Cling to Christ. He is the conqueror. He is the victor. To you who conquer, you have all these blessings. Well, you can't do it. Cling to your king. And so these visions are set up kind of like scaffolding in a building to, to hold up this message. And I think it's helpful to be reminded of the scaffolding that we've already looked at along the way. The book of Revelation, again, is a book about Jesus Christ. That goes all the way back to chapter 1. In fact, chapter 1, verse 1 implies that the book of Revelation is a gift from God the Father to God the Son. The revelation of, of the glory of Christ enthroned on high. And the gift to Christ is that he gets to give that to his churches. As we live our lives on a battlefield, as we live our lives uh, on the earth, in the time between Christ's ascension and his return, every church in every age, and we've got our own sin problem, we've got the world, we've got the enemies around us, God the Father gave to God the Son the book of Revelation to give to us through the Holy Spirit that we might be empowered to live a life of faithfulness to Jesus. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. 
practical to us. The great message has been Christ wins. Now, it's communicated that message to us by way of a pattern. And the pattern has been this, and it goes all the way back to chapter 1. The pattern is the heaven is opened up, and John gets a vision, and then that is followed by seven things. That is the vision. It's helpful if you sit down and read the book of Revelation in one sitting. We did that when we opened. We'll do it again when we conclude. And I hope that at various times in this study, you'll do the same thing. You're helped to see this structure if you sit down and read it in one setting. Over and over and over in cycles. There's a heaven is opened and John receives a vision and then there's seven things. So in Revelation 1, we, we see heaven is opened and John sees into heaven and then he's given instruction to write to seven churches. That's, that sets the pattern. And then we get through those messages to the seven churches. We get to chapter 4 and 5. Right Again, heaven is opened up. John hears the voice, come up here. And then that is followed by the seven seals. And then we get to to chapter 8. Heaven is opened up again, followed by the blowing of seven trumpets. And those trumpets run from Revelation 8, 9, 10, and 11. Then in chapter 12, the heavens are opened up. There's a vision. And it's followed by seven visions. And that's where we've been. And those visions are different from the seal judgments. They're different from the trumpet judgments. If you remember, the last couple of months we've been looking at, it's showing us why the trumpet judgments, why the seal judgments. What has gone wrong? It's giving us kind of a behind-the-scene picture of at the root of all this problem, we have a battle that's waging between uh, Christ and the great dragon. And, and, and the dragon's allies, the, uh, the, drawn from the, 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 the sea and drawn from the land, who are, are trying to dr- destroy Christ. And if he can't get Christ, destroy his people. Get them to drift away from him. And it's kind of been a behind-the-scenes image. And there's just been seven visions laid out. Well, now we come to chapter 15. And how does it begin? We saw it two weeks ago, verses 1 through 4. The heavens are opened. And verse 2, 3, 4, they, John is given a vision of the very end of things. The final victory of God's people. They're singing, they're celebrating of God's deliverance through Jesus Christ. And that's followed by seven bold judgments. And so what, it's important for us to see that what we're looking at this morning, we already read the text. Your mind is probably already exploding because of some of the language we saw there. We need to understand that what we're looking at is not any different from anything, everything we've already seen. We're not going to go crazy here on the bold judgment. We're not going to go outrageous. We're not going to go, you know, start reaching for things here because we haven't done it thus far. This is another roundabout of everything we've been looking at. Hoping in Jesus. And what happens to a world that refuses Christ, that refuses his lordship. So, as we look at Revelation chapter 15 and 16, we are actually coming to the end of this cycle of visions. I mean, it goes all the way back to the beginning. We're just circling over. We're coming to the end of it. And that's made clear in verse 1, chapter 15, verse 1. Then John says, I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. Now, two weeks ago, We looked at verses 2 through 4, heavens opening up. 
that heavenly vision of uh, all the nations worshiping God in victory. He has won. He's defeated. He's overcome his enemies. And then, in keeping with the pattern we've seen, come seven things. John sees, beginning in verses 5, 6, 7, 8, here in chapter 15, he sees seven angels marching out of from heaven's glory. They're clothed in pure white linen, the golden sash. We've seen all this before. These are not new. These have been in previous images. They're coming, and, and everything, in fact, in chapters 15 and 16, is coming from the throne room of God. Just, just as the seal judgments came, just as the trumpet judgments did. It's all coming from the throne room of God. The seven angels come out, and they are met by the, the four beasts. We saw them in Revelation 4. The, the, the symbolic of the ends of the earth, north, south, east, west. And they give to the angels these seven bowls. But there's something here we need to think about. I want us to understand, on one hand, we're not seeing anything different from what we've already seen. But on the other hand, we're seeing something very different from what has previously come before. There is a unity between the seven trumpet judgments and the seven bowl judgments. If you've recently gone back and looked at the trumpet judgments, I hope it resonated. For instance, the first trumpet judgment in chapter 8 announced that God would pour out judgment on the earth. What was the first bowl judgment? Chapter 16, verse 2, so the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. If you go back to the trumpet judgments in chapter 8, the second one announced that something would happen to the sea. What's the second bold judgment? It's on the sea. The third bold uh, trumpet judgment was the rivers. So it is with the third bowl. The fourth trumpet judgment was the sun. The fourth bold judgment is the sun. The fifth involved the opening of the abyss and Satan. And likewise, the fifth bold judgment here involves Satan. The sixth trumpet judgment involved the river Euphrates. Likewise, the sixth bowl judgment is upon the river Euphrates. The seventh trumpet brings the climax, the the final judgment, if you will. And likewise, here in the bowl judgments, it's the climax of the whole thing. Now, we need to see that overlap. We need to understand that there's continuity here between the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments. And because we spent a lot of time going, I'm not going to re-preach those things. If you need a reminder of how I understand those things to be, we have those messages available to you on our YouTube channel. You can go back and listen to those. I would be be saying the exact same thing here, God's judgment upon these entities. But having said that, it's obvious that God is being redundant here, repetitious. And the question is, why? Why this pattern? Why the similarity? Why the redundancy? What is the purpose of these bold judgments in light of the fact the trumpet judgments already brought judgment upon these exact same things? Why are they so similar? And the answer is one, if, if, if you've heard me in the past, it's this. It's difference in purpose. Trumpets are for blowing. You blow trumpets 
to alarm, to alert. In the Old Testament, trumpets were blown to announce the presence of God, the manifest presence of God among his people. It's to announce God is present or God is doing something. And likewise with the trumpet judgments upon all these various entities. God is at work in judgment upon these things. Bowls, on the other hand, are for pouring out. Bowls are for, once it's out of the bowl, it's kind of like toothpaste, right? You, you can't put it back in. Once the bowls are poured out, it's the end. And again, forgive me for the repetition, but because I, I know you're battling the same things I am, which is how we've always been taught the book of Revelation, I, I, we need to keep in mind that the seal judgment, trumpet judgment, they're not chronological. It's not the seal trumpets, the seals happen first, and then the trumpets will happen, and then the bold. It's cyclical. They're, they're happening simultaneously. It has to do with degrees of judgment. They're occurring at the same time to every church in every age, to the world in between the ascension of Christ and his return. But the difference is in intensity. And we see this if we're, if we're paying attention. This is where it's become clearest to me. When you go back and look at the, 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 the seal judgments, there's a n number there, that, a symbolic number, that it's told that it affects, a quarter. The trumpet judgment, it, it ups the ante a little bit. It says that it affects a third. And now you get to the bold judgments, and it's everything, all of it, everything. So in the seal judgments, there's some restraint, some mercy of God poured in with his judgment. In the trumpets, there's less. It's affecting more people, but there's still some restraint of God. It's only affecting, symbolically, a third. But when we get to the bowls, the wrath of God, there is no restraint. There's no mixture of mercy. Mercy came while the trumpets were blowing, while we lived every day in a world where God from his throne was blowing trumpets, judgment, restrained judgment on a world around us, on us, where we have been in rebellion to him. Heed the trumpet while it blows. Because we don't know when that trumpet will turn into a bowl and it begins pouring out. And in that moment, it's over. So, when we're reading chapter 16, we want to read it just as we read chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11. But understand, there's gravity here. There's intensity here that cannot be overstated. And if we take this, these bold judgments and go and let's, let's grab it. Man, we will totally miss what has been the scaffolding that's been laid before us and miss the message of a very kind and merciful God to a people who still live in rebellion to him. Hear the message while there's still, still time. So let me say this about the trumpet judgments as we think about these bold judgments. For the past 2,000 years, the trumpet judgments have occurred every single day, just like the seal judgments and the bold judgments, but the trumpet judgments, God is mercifully blowing them everywhere around us to get our attention. To get attention of people that God is real, God exists, God is on his throne, 
God is serious, God is holy, God is worthy of worship. But you have chosen to rebel against Him. You've chosen sin. You've chosen to make yourself your own God, to go your own way, to live how you want to live. You have abandoned and alienated God. And now you've pursued other things. You've made idols out of other things. Now, none of them have satisfied you, right? I mean, we can all sit here and say, man, for every idol I've pursued, even when I get my hands on it, it doesn't satisfy. That's a trumpet judgment of God. (laughs) We're going to talk about it in just a minute. One of the judgments of God is, you want it so bad, I'll let you have it. But the judgment is, you're going to experience and see that it's not gold. It's not going to satisfy, and in fact, it's probably going to harm you. Harm you internally. In, in driving you further away from God, hardening your heart towards God. The trumpets are constantly blowing, and it's a restrained judgment of God, so that we'll repent while there's still time. And these bowls come into the picture this morning to understand that the blowing of the trumpets, they do not go on forever. As we look at the bowls this morning, they're not for getting our attention. They are for punishing. The bowls are poured out for destruction. And when they are poured out upon a soul, upon a church, upon a nation, they are finished forever. So, even from just a broad general overview of trying to understand the bold judgments in light of the whole of the book, we need to consider these things if we are intent to ignore the ongoing trumpet blows of God all around us. You can expect bowls to follow. So there is value in us, practical value in us studying the bold judgments in chapter 16. My prayer this week for my own soul and for yours is that God would help us to move beyond an understanding of these bold judgments that only sees them at some future time, chronologically, just moments before Jesus returns. And it, 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 it has no connection to us whatsoever. These were written for the seven churches, for you and I. We've got to feel and understand God is serious about His glory. He's holy, and He's been merciful. He's been restrained in His judgment. But there are limits to that. And the bold judgments are teaching us final judgment is sure to come. So, what do these verses teach us? And let me just say this. This this might be the hardest text that I've had in this uh, to try to how do I handle this? How do I how do I present this? And so I'm going to bear with me it's probably not going to be the cleanest presentation but here's just kind of random thoughts that to help us maybe to understand this. What do these verses teach us? First and foremost they reveal to us the true nature of God's judgment. The bold judgments are about that. God's final judgment. And they teach us about the nature of God's judgment. Now, here's why this is important. 
Ever since Eden, humanity has had a false and a skewed view of God, meaning either they reject him outright, which is how all of us live, or when they do consider God, they formulate a God of their own making, their own liking. They shape him how it most is suitable to them. Now, God is holy. God is self-centered. God is all about presenting himself as he is. But we want a God that's more palatable to us. We prefer a God of our own imagination, that's more suitable to our likings. A God that's a little bit gentler. A God that's a little softer. Maybe a God that's a little bit more merciful, maybe more understanding. Maybe a God who understands, listen, we're human. We're going to make mistakes. This is where we hear things like, well, my God is a God of love, and he would not send someone to hell over something as trite as a little white lie. I mean, come on, come on. You're the God that you've, you've created as a monster. Well, let's consider our text. What does God reveal about himself in our text? When you read the verses here in, in, in chapters 15 and 16, your mind, if you're, if you're reading paying any attention, it has to go back at various points to the Exodus, going back to Egypt and the ten plagues and the the kind of judgments there and the plagues in Egypt are very reminiscent. Uh, In fact, it lays a foundation of what he's doing here in final judgment. In fact, the Exodus and the deliverance of God's people in the Exodus and the judgment upon the Egyptians really becomes throughout the Bible the prototype, the model of how God deals with his enemies. It's almost setting the the foundation for us to to understand that. And in this passage here, we see a God who is serious about how he will judge his enemies, just as he did the Egyptians, just as he did throughout the Old Testament to various people, people, to various nations. So too here is the consummation of that pattern. We see it in... Revelation chapter 15, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty, just and true are your ways. And then we'll get to chapter 16, into the particular judgments. We read things like in verse 5, an angel cries out, just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Just two things here. I want us to think about the nature of God's judgments. When we read about God's final judgment, the pouring out of bowls of God's wrath, unrestrained, we've got to understand this about his judgments. Number one, they are righteous. They are horrific. And they are perfectly righteous. Again, chapter 15, verse 4, your righteous acts have been revealed. God is right to do this. Chapter 16, verse 5, you are the Holy One. You have brought these judgments. It is what they deserve. Verse 7, true and just are your judgments. We, the people of God, need to reflect upon this because few in our world do. That God is just and true in punishing sin. We live in a world today where we, we, we look at this kind of judgment of God, unrestrained wrath, and we ask, what sin could possibly make God react like this? 
What, what sin would, would cause God to, to be this unmerciful and this unrestrained in his wrath? But what these verses and this testimony of the angels is telling us is this. Because all of God's judgments are righteous and true, they're just and true, then how great must even the little sins we think they are, how great must they be? You see the difference? This is helping us to rethink the gravity of our own sin. We who sin every day, oh, it's no big deal. God knows I'm imperfect. It's a struggle. These bold judgments lay out for us how serious God is about sin and how blind at various times we are about our own sin. And how little we view our sin as in that moment we've marred the glory of God. Here, the angels are declaring as they are executing God's wrath in final judgment, just and true, righteous are your ways. It is right for you to do this. It is right in light of the sin of these people. It seemed like no big deal to them. But it was a marring of your glory, a murder of you. And you are right to judge like this. A second thing we learn about the the character, the nature of God's judgment, not only that they're righteous, but they're true. Just and true is a phrase we see twice here in chapter 15 and chapter 16. Just and true are your ways in chapter 15, and then in 16, true and just are your judgments. What's the difference? Just and true. Just means they're in keeping with God's righteous character. It means God is holy, God is righteous, and therefore when he executes judgment, it is holy and it is righteous. That's just. True, though, true means they are consistent with the way that we have lived. Let me say that again. They're consistent with the way we have lived. And the illustration of this is in verse 6, chapter 16, verse 6. Speaking of those who are the objects of God's Bold judgments here, verse 6. They have shed the blood of the saints and prophets. And what? You've given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve, is what the text says. Now that's a picture. And what's it illustrating? That God's judgment, unrestrained upon a world that lives in rebellion to him, is perfectly measured out to the gravity of our sin against him. It is perfectly measured out to our sin against him. We live in the Western world where our understanding of the judicial system is we go before a court of law in front of a jury of peers, right? And you have the, uh, the prosecution of the defense. They lay out their, their case. And then it's a jury of peers who take as best they can the information that they've received. And as best they can, they try to come together to a unified, as a jury of peers, here's as best we understand what happened and we declare this person to be innocent or, or guilty or not guilty. Well, when it comes to God's true judgment, he's provided a jury of peer for us. 
Jesus talks about on that day, many will say to him, Lord, Lord, didn't we, uh, how can you send me away? Didn't I, I was religious, I was moral. I, 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 I was the preacher in the, in the church. This, that, or the other. Lord, I've got all kinds. Of... And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. I don't know, when I read that, I picture the look in people's eyes. Maybe even trying to stare God down. Again, now that's, that's an audacious thing, but just the, 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 bear with me the symbolism of it, all right? I understand when you're in the presence of God, you melt like wax. I'm not suggesting, but I am saying just the, what? You know, the shock, the awe. We have a jury who has observed the evidence against us. It's a jury of one. We have a peer. He is Christ. And he's not listening to the argument of a prosecution and defense. He came and lived in the flesh. He came, the Bible says, and endured all the temptation we did, but with him it was without sin. Meaning this, when you and I face temptation, at some point in that temptation, we break down and we fall. And so there is a limit to the amount of temptation we endure. But Christ, because he never fell, he took on temptation the full measure of it to the, to the fullest extent. Our jury of one is qualified and knowledgeable, and he knows the temptation we've gone through. He knows our sin, and he is by the, God's throne and when we're standing in the presence of Christ, there will not be any argument, but it was hard. But come on, you know I'm human, I'm frail, nobody's perfect. Christ himself is standing right there. He knows better than we do. Our mouths will go shut in the presence of Jesus Christ who never gave in, who never gave in to the, the temptation uh, the way you and I have. He stood firm, therefore he is capable, capable of assessing you and me perfectly so that the judgment of God upon a soul is perfectly measured out to our sin against God. Does that make sense? He knows. And that's why I hear the angels, just and true are your judgments. Uh, those who killed the prophets, they got what they deserved. And so will everyone who doesn't repent. So the judgments of, of God are righteous, they are true, but there's a second thing I want us to see in this passage here in the, the, the bold judgments. And the second is this, the objects of God's judgments, the objects. And I may put it this way, the, the emptiness of all that is not Christ. The emptiness of all that is not Christ. We just sang a song. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Now we sing that on a Sunday morning or maybe in our quiet times as we, we open up the hymn book and we sing praises to God. But then if you're like me, we turn around and walk right out the door right out of the world and we do plant our feet into sinking sand. And we want it. And we, right? I mean, it's just, it's, we're... we're we're fallen people. Well, here, understand this in the bold judgments. Everything that we could possibly try to pursue, we make an idol out of, and we pursue because I, I got to have this. I want this. I need this. 
to be whole, to be happy, to be just understand in these bold judgments, every one of those things across the panorama will be destroyed. And we're not going to take the time to go through everything, but in verses 2 through 9, again, we have the first four bold judgments of God. Remember, in the sealed judgments, the first four go together. In the trumpet judgments, the first four go together. Likewise, again, we're just, it's just verifying the cyclical nature of things. The first four go together. It all has to do with this physical world. We see God's judgment on the world. God's judgment on a world that lives in rebellion to him. It's almost like, you remember when Jesus takes the scroll from the Father, and there's a subsequent deconstructing of creation, right? Everything that God created is being almost wiped away like a scroll is folding up on it. Well, that's what this bold judgment is. Everything in the world that has rebelled against Christ will crumble. It will be worthless. It will be destroyed. Anyone who's not trusted Christ and clinging to Christ is prone to idolatry. We're all prone, and we're guilty of it. We've all clung to unreliable gods. Well, the bold judgments are helping us to see whether it be a relationship, whether it be money, a career, job, family, uh, some material possession, a house, the perfect life, whatever. It's an unreliable idol, an unreliable God, and just read through those first four, God's judgment upon the world, the earth, the water, the will all be destroyed. Don't hitch your wagon to the things of this world. In verses 10 through 16, we have God's judgment upon the unholy trinity, upon the enemies. We have there that graphic imagery, crazy imagery of the fifth angel pouring his bowl on the, the throne of the beast and upon his kingdom. And then in verse 12, the the angel pouring out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, it was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And then I saw the dragon out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Unclean spirits came like frogs. Again, symbolic language. Don't stay faithful to everything we've seen to this point. Everything's symbolic. What we're looking at here is very reminiscent of what we've seen all throughout Scripture. God drying up water for the salvation of his people and the subsequent judgment of his enemies, right? Exodus is just kind of one of those that is kind of the core. Separates the Red Sea. God's people go across on dry ground. Here come the Egyptians, the God's enemies. There go the waters. We see it in, in the book of Joshua. We see a mention here of the, the river Euphrates, and this is where sometimes I've had discussions with, with some of you. How in the world would first century Christians understand the book of Revelation like this? And I understand that question. I had it at one point too. But here's where I've come. They understood the symbolism and imagery in a way that we don't. They knew the history that was going on around them. I and mean, we're too far gone from it. The things that are, so they would have understood these things. And and you go back and read the commentaries of the first century, and they understood these things in a very God-centered way that we, just through the passage of time, haven't. And one of the things that when you look at this at the river Euphrates, one of the incidents that we see in the Bible has to do with the incident between King Cyrus and uh, Belshazzar, 
right? You remember that story? You have Belshazzar. They're, they're, they're drunk. They're partying overnight, the enemies of God. But they think they're safe. That's why they're drunk. They're partying. Their enemies are surrounding them, King Cyrus and his enemies. But they're drunk and they're partying because they're, they're kind of bricked in by the river Euphrates, right? They're safe. And you remember what you, King Cyrus does? I mean, God, God's sovereign over all of this. He redirects the Euphrates River. Previously, as long as the Euphrates River is where it is, they can't get through to get King Belshazzar. But they redirect the Euphrates River. And now, all of a sudden, they have a passageway. And they overtake King Belshazzar. And they overcome just as God prophesied that they would. It's those images that we see in the Bible. If you, you have to know your Bible well to pick up on these images. That here, as, as God is talking about the, the, his wrath upon the Euphrates and, and the, the enemies of God, the dragon and his beast, it's God's judgment on that unholy trinity that we read about in chapters 12, 13, and 14. Satan and his allies. It's a picture of the ultimate defeat of God's enemies. They too will be destroyed. So don't hitch your wagon to the enemies of God. Don't find some false god because they too will be destroyed. And then in verse 17, we have, of course, 17 through 21, the seventh and final of the bold judgments upon Babylon. We saw Babylon in chapter 14. We're going to see it again over the next few weeks. Again, Babylon is symbolic of the world systems world's religions, Christ plus. And what happens to the world systems? Remember in chapter 14, all the prostitute. And when the judgment of God comes, don't be found in bed with the prostitute, with the world. Don't be found drinking at the bar with the, prostitute, with the, uh, the, the drunk Babylon. Because just as Babylon will be destroyed, those in bed with her will be destroyed. Those drinking with her will be destroyed. Verses 17 through 21 is the destruction of Babylon, the world systems, the religious systems. You remember one of the enemies of Satan, excuse me, one of the allies of Satan was a beast who looked like a lamb, who created a false religion. It sounded like Christ, looked like Christ, included the name of Christ, it looked like, but it was something altogether different, didn't it? Anyone who attaches themselves to the idol of the world or the idol of, these, of God's enemies or the idol of false religion and the world systems will be destroyed. That's the emptiness of the world around us. The bold judgment is revealing to us you would be a fool to look to anything other than Jesus Christ. Because everything that's not Jesus and is not clinging to Jesus will be destroyed, just as we've seen in all the other cycles. Remember them crying for the mountains to fall down upon them in judgment? Just, just bury me alive instead of having to face the wrath of Jesus Christ who's come in judgment to destroy all things. This is just another picture of that picture of final judgment. And there's one other thing I want us to see here. Not just the nature of God's judgments and the emptiness of the world. The practical message for you and I this morning. 
for the longest time, and I've been guilty of this as well, I've understood these bold judgments in light of some future date. I don't even know when. These things will occur then, and it's cool to think about, but it's probably not going to affect me. And Satan would love for that to be the case, for us to sit here and think there is no application of this to us as well. As we look at this passage here, we're reminded this final judgment of unrestrained wrath is a certainty. And once it's poured out like the tube and the toothpaste, there, there's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to flee. There's nowhere to hide. You are done. We don't know when. This is not a chronological thing. We're not waiting on something has to happen and then the bold judgment. These are all happening simultaneously. And if in your life right now, God is sounding the trumpet, sounding the trumpet, there he is not promising that tomorrow in your life, the trumpet will still be there. He may say, enough's enough, and now I bring the poor of the bowl on you. And around you, God is still being merciful, and there's trumpets blaring in there, but you don't know when. So for you and I this morning, the issue is we need to understand God's judgments are true, they are just, they are real, and to hold to anything and pursue anything other than Christ is foolishness. Therefore, Am I hearing the trumpets? These are not audible. They're spiritual. They're spiritual. And they're intended to get our attention. Let me give us just a few ways that the Bible mentions that God judges in restrained wrath to get our attention. Various ways that God today, maybe you walked in this morning and you didn't see it this way, or you didn't hear it this way, or maybe you did, but you didn't feel the urgency of it. But now, against the backdrop of these bold judgments, I, I, I must give attention to the sounding of the trumpet now. Let me give you just a, a few ways where, biblically, we see God sounding the trumpet. Number one, at times, God will give people what they want. That is a judgment of God. When God has laid out himself before you, says, I am all, I've given you my son, come to me. And yet you continue, or I continue in rebellion. Yeah, 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 God, yes. And in my quiet time, yes, God, you are all. And in, in, on Sunday morning, I sit down and I, 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 take, I take notes. And I write down everything that's said. And I'm serious about it on Sunday morning. But it's all a sham. This isn't really who I am. This is, this is a Sunday morning thing. I don't open this notebook up again until next Sunday, or the Bible until next Sunday, because our hearts really don't want God. We want, and we're going to leave here, and we're determined to get something else. One of God's judgments is, fine, I'll let you have it. And the question is, is that you? Are you pursuing something other than God? And that could be, there are limitless things. Marriage, a family, a better job, more money, health. Something to fill up your heart that's not God. What is it that's got you excited for this next week to get Monday going, get up out of bed, get going? It's a judgment of God to say, you want something other than me, I'll let you have it. But beware the emptiness of soul that will accompany it. I'll let you have it. It's not going to satisfy. And then tomorrow you're going to, well, what do I do? What do I, I got to find something. And I'll let you have it. And you're going to be miserable. 
That's my judgment upon you. And, well, come on now. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Why? I got to find something. And he'll let you have it. And it's just this constant downward spiral. If that's you, and it's been all of us at one time or another, I'm sure, that's a trumpet blaring. A trumpet to see how futile this world is and to pin your hopes to God. A second way the Bible speaks about God giving judgment, remedial judgment, restrained judgment, is in spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness. People love the darkness. John 3 says Jesus came into the world as light, and the world did not receive him, meaning the world rejected him. They did not want the light coming in and shining upon their lives, because if the light shines upon their lives, what we saw in Psalm 139, they're exposed. Well, who they really are is exposed. So they don't want the light. They don't want Christ. They don't want his presence because, man, he's going to expose the real me. So I want to hide from Christ. I want to get away from Christ. And yet in John 3, here's, here's the judgment on John 3. Those very people who, still, who rejected Christ, where were they on the Sabbath? The temple was full. And they were in their temple. They were worshiping. The Pharisees were still teaching. The Sadducees were still ruling all in the name of God. And the point is you can be religious and still be trying to hide from God. Is that you this morning? That would be a trumpet of God. You're here this morning. You're, I'm here. I'm preaching the message. Is that me this morning? But hiding from God. If that's the reality, Understand that against the backdrop of the bold judgments. We're not promised another day, another moment. What did we read about those upon the bold judgments poured out? They did not repent. Three times we read it. They did not repent. They did not repent. They were fools. Well, will God grant us the grace to be wise? A third way that... God blows the trumpet around us as a calloused conscience that no longer feels. Another way is spiritual deafness. Isaiah chapter 6, that great passage where God says, who will go for me? Right? Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And then he tells him to who he's sending him to. This never gets preached. I'm sending you to a people who, they're not going to listen to a word you say. You will preach for year after year after year, my word, my truth. And they will audibly hear, but their hearts are dead. And I'm doing it, it is to their judgment. It is to their judgment. Friends, if we read a passage like that and we are not gravely searching our own soul and our own heart for spiritual hearing, not my voice, but the voice of God in his open word, then We've got to understand that's a trumpet blaring and against the backdrop of the bold judgments. Then it's too late. Now, now, repent and turn to the Lord. Another way is when God removes the restraint on your life and just let you sin however you want to. It's Romans 1. They refuse to worship the creator. They worship the creation. Romans 1 says, therefore, God gave them over. You want it, you got it. It's an expression of God's remedial judgment. 
And if you're in a season of life, you feel like, man, I, I love my sin. I want my sin. I'm going to do my sin. Look, God's not doing anything. Be frightened. Be frightened. If God has given you over to your sin and the bold judgments have not poured out upon you, my goodness, there is a mixture of mercy in there. Today, flee to your king in repentance. Flee to him because the bold judgments are reminding us everything will flow away. The point of Revelation 15 and 16, did we get into all the details? No. Did I satisfy every question you had about it? Absolutely not. Did I skip over anything? Some of the symbolism, but again, is there's nothing new here in chapter 15 and 16 that's not come previously. It's everything we see. The point here is we've got to stop thinking of these judgments, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments as something that happens in the last hour of the last day right before Jesus comes. No, it's occurring now all around us, and it's a mercy of God to alert us, to awaken us. The final judgment is coming. It can come at any moment. And when it comes for me, it may be different for you. And I pray God it's not coming to me or you, but you know what I'm saying. It comes upon each individual at a different time. But there is a cup of wrath that's being filled up, and when it reaches its full measure, he will pour it out. Revelation 15 and 16 is not about our curiosities about the end time. It is about run to Jesus while you have time. Repent and run to Jesus. If your heart is seared, if your spiritual ears are deaf, if your spiritual eyes are blind, if your conscience is, is, is cold and callous, be gravely concerned. That's a trumpet of the Lord. Run to Jesus now while there's still time. And the beautiful thing about chapter 16 is we read about two different cups. The cup of the fury of God's wrath in one hand and the cup of Jesus Christ in the other. You and I will drink from one or the other. For one or the other. The cup of the fury, the wine of God's judgment, unrestrained wrath poured out upon a soul because of the weight and gravity of a sin against this God. But there is another cup, a cup that his son drank. And he drank it on behalf of those who would run to him, feeling the weight and gravity of their helplessness, their need, so that because he drank out of that cup, we don't have to drink out of the cup of the curse of God's final judgment. Refuse the cup of Christ, and you are done. There is no hope. But to those who will drink of the cup of Christ today, run to him in spite of whatever trumpet is blowing in your ear. It's a spiritual trumpet. Whatever the Spirit is exposing, run to Christ. Drink from him. Drink from him again. Drink from him. He is a fountain. We're fixing to sing a song. He's a fountain of flowing blood that we must cling to. We must constantly be drinking. Why do we keep drinking communion, symbolic of the blood of Christ? Not because we need it once, but because we're constantly in need of the blood of Jesus Christ. Run to Him. Cling to Him. Glorify in Christ.
anything else you live for this week, Revelation 15 and 16 exposes, it's sinking sand.